This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. My guest today is Mr. Louis Shapiro. Since 2006, Mr. Shapiro has served as president and CEO of Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. Mr. Shapiro has more than 30 years of healthcare experience, including as executive vice president and chief, chief operating officer of Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania and as a consultant at McKinsey and Company. Lou, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here. So about two and a half years ago, I joined HSS as a research assistant in the Department of Radiology. On my first day, you came in to talk at my employee orientation about the importance of culture at HSS. Uh, since that time, I have seen how this culture drives clinicians and staff to pursue excellence in patient care and research. Can you describe the culture you've tried to establish as a leader at HSS and how it is central to the mission of the institution? Great. Um, thanks. Um, I think there are um, unlimited ways to um, define and describe culture, um, and it depends on where you sit and what it means to that individual and what it means to the organization. So from where I sit um, and what it means to me and therefore to HSS is that we are trying to create an environment that allows people to be the very best they can be and contribute to what the organization is doing in a way that is beyond what anyone would normally expect when they think about um, a culture of an organization. There's a um, management saying out there that you know, culture eats strategy for lunch. And what that means is that culture is more than more important than strategy. And there's just a slightly different way to think about it. And that is um, the way I think about it. And that's your culture is a strategy that if deployed correctly, allows an organization to achieve a level of performance and results that are otherwise unattainable. And you know, that's the sort of the continuous journey that I've been on here to contribute to creating a culture where if you take a look at HSS from the outside and you say, well, you know, how do they do what they do? It's sort of like the secret ingredient um, is, you know, the culture of the um, organization. Um, how do people feel about working here? You know, when they wake up in the morning, are they excited to come to work? Do they feel like they're a piece of a puzzle or do they feel that they are the creator of the puzzle? And just you know, one, you know, one final word on this um, is just another way to think about it um, is um, a philosophy that... Um, I think about, um, and not you know, taking credit for it or not, but the sort of the, the way I characterize it is leadership by all. 
everyone is a leader regardless of your role. So if we have 6,000 people who consider HSS the place they work, then we have 6,000 leaders here. And they're leaders of helping the organization fulfill its purpose. They're leaders of living our values. They're leaders of finding their spot on how they contribute to moving us forward across all dimensions. It doesn't matter what their role is, whether they're a, a researcher, a nurse, um, a um, technologist, um, a painter, a housekeeper, a security officer, doesn't, doesn't matter what their role is. They're a leader of moving the organization forward. So how do you create the environment to accomplish that? Six months after I joined HSS, New York City was shutting down due to COVID-19. Uh, one day in late February of 2020, actually, I was walking into work with a colleague and I said, what if the number of COVID patients got so high that HSS would have to act as a COVID treatment center? And my colleague who I was walking with, you know, kind of laughed at that and said that was impossible. But of course, that is what, what kind of happened. Uh, can you discuss the metamorphosis of HSS in the early days of COVID from a specialty musculoskeletal hospital to a multifaceted medical center? You know, when, um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, that's a really big question. Um, so the, the analogy was, you know, when there was one day, um, well, you know, in, in February, there was concern about what was going on. And it was sort of like, um, I don't know, there was, a, there was a fire burning somewhere, but it was burning you know, far away. And then, um, you know, you started coming closer and closer. And then, you know, literally one day, and we thought we needed to prepare for it. So, all right, let's plan for um, defining what urgent means or saying, okay, well, we're going to you know, constrain traveling. There are things that you do in the early days. And this is when it was still more in Seattle than here. And then one day you realize... You know, oh my God, the house is on fire. And when your house is on fire, and your house being New York City, but when your house is on fire, there's almost no limits to what you can do to save your neighbors or your family or your pets or your most valuable possessions or yourself. You do what you need to do. And there was a time when it was like we said, we, we need to do more. Because before that time, it was we need to do less. We, we need to not travel. We need to not take care of elective patients. We need to not do this. And there was a time then it was like all of a sudden we need to do more. So number one. Hospitals, send us your non-COVID patients so you have more room to take care of COVID patients. 
that only lasted a couple of days. This was like a tsunami. And you know, we made that decision and we said, okay, now let's be consistent with what we did before. How do we create an environment that allows people to be the best they can be? Or how do we create an environment that allows the organization to do what it needs to do? And it, you know, before it was for musculoskeletal health, now it was for this. So we needed to make sure that people were safe. We always felt that way, but new definition. So we created these principles of protection. We need to keep our patients safe, our staff safe, the organization safe, and the community safe. Principles of protection. What do, so what are all the things we need to do? And then we just created the, and that was really around people, right? So people. And then um, what structure do we need? We needed to create the structure that allowed us to do that. Who's in charge? How do we train people? How do we create the right facilities? What equipment do we put in place? And then you know, process things. Um, you know, um, um, making sure our supply chain is there. You know, how do we make sure PPE is there? There's a lot of process stuff. And how do we communicate? And we just put all those pieces of the puzzle in place in a very sort of fast but organized fashion and we did it because the house was on fire day one day two day three and continued through that continued with that same sort of organizing framework every day through that process up until even um you know with whatever it is that we did knew that was today or whatever we announced you know, two weeks ago with the booster mandate. It's all principle of protection, building on the culture that we had before to do what we did before the pandemic and now doing what we need to do now at this, you know, at whatever phase we are in. Yeah, going off of that, I mean, you alluded to some of the early challenges of COVID, right? Uh, COVID cases, you know, even deaths, shortages of hospital beds, ventilators and PPE, you know, healthcare worker burnout, just to kind of name a few. What did it feel like kind of in those early initial days of, of COVID and, and in that uncertainty? What, what did it feel like to be a leader uh, in the midst of that crisis? Leadership by all. Everyone's a leader regardless of their role. So everyone, um, it, it felt the same. <laughs> it, felt, it felt the same as it did before. Um, I'm obviously different, um, longer hours, more stress, more tired, but no different than before. Um, we have people who need us, and then we have people who help take care of the people who need us, and we have to take care of those people, and how do we do that? It's the, sa it's, it's the same before, during, and after. Um, but, you know, here, the house was in fire. You're, you know, there's lives at stake. And there's different kinds of emotions and anxiety. So it felt like, I don't know, I felt like, you know, my, I, I don't know that, um, that the leader's role was any, certainly the leader's role 
was no more important, maybe um, equally important or less important than the staff nurse who was taking care of a COVID patient that the week before was taking care of a drug replacement patient, or the physical therapist who was proning a patient in an operating room that used to be an ICU, and the week before he or she was taking care of a patient who had their ACL repaired. Um, you know, everyone's doing very important work um, around whatever role they they play, and you know, you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders, whether you're saving the life of this person or making sure the organization has the ability to save the life of that person. Can you talk about, uh, you know, in the in the midst of all that was going on, sort of your relationship with, with local and state governments? I know just kind of as a person, you know, sort of re- receiving different instructions about COVID protocols, it was it was unclear at times whether the the instructions were going to come from the institution, from the New York City, from New York State. So can you talk about how you sort of coordinated uh, with those uh, parties to, to create best practices during COVID? Yeah, you know, I think um, everyone has a hard job, whether it's an individual in a certain role, or in the organization, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and a lot of moving parts, um, there's no playbook for this. So whether you're talking about New York City, New York State, or the United States, um, you know, we had a leadership structure in place and, you know, HSS, was just like any other hospital and HSS was different than any other hospital. Um, so you, we had to think about both of those dimensions with the city. So we said, um, hey, let's take orthopedic trauma from other places so they don't have to deal with it. So we work with the fire department on that. And you know, some level of you know, coordination with NYP, because they're next door, and Greater New York, because of their role. And then the state, you know, keeping track of whatever it is they were telling us we needed to do, and you know, participating in briefings, and dealing with, um, look, um, when it, there's always rules, and rules always change, um, fast or slow, depending on the environment, and you sort of, you, you roll with the punches as you need to. And you do what you need to do, and um, that you know that um, uh, obviously uh, continues um, to today, different than it did you know back back then. Every month, but you know, I'd say the last um, February, so it will be two years in for New York. Will be two years in a month, so twenty three months. Um, at one at one point every day was different than the day before and then it got to a point where every week was different than the week before and then now we're like every month is different than the month before but we're you know evolving so how you deal with things whether it's internal or with um, other organizing bodies um, has evolved. One side effect of COVID-19 that's definitely uh 
playing out as we go along is the explosion of telehealth. Uh, can you talk about just the emergence of, of those technologies at such a fast rate? And, and what do you think the, the balance of in-person remote care will look like in the future? So this was a thing before COVID. Um, a lot of things were things before COVID. And then COVID came and you obviously respond to the challenges and you need to um, meet with people. You can't meet in person, so Zoom becomes a thing. You need care, you can't deliver care in person, so telehealth became a thing. So we went from, I think in uh, 2019, um, we did a thousand televisits. So it was a thing back then. Um, you know, other organizations did more, whatever. And then in 2021, I think we did um, 120,000 televisits or something like a large number. Um, and then, you know, 22, it went down. Uh, but, um, you know, let's say, you know, half of 2021. Um, and now it's finding its place, you know, reaching an equilibrium level, but also gave us an opportunity to learn more. And now we are looking at how to expand that and use, understand, uh, we have an accelerated understanding of the role of digital and virtual care, which is like tele. Um, and its application. And, you know, with all these things, pendulums always swing too far. You do whatever you're doing, something changes, then you do too much of it, and then you go back and you do too little of it, and then you go back and you find the spot and evolve from there. I think that's what your know, 2022 is. And you, we are um, continuing to build upon what we learned what we were doing before and what we learned during and now how we want to use those learnings to um, look at our strategic roadmap, our journey, better knowledge and scale. How do we scale our influence and our impact through the knowledge we have? Well, guess what? Uh, virtual is going to be a big part of that going forward. But in your eyes, uh, when, when you think about kind of the balance uh, of like how, like what percentage of, you know, your, your visit, obviously surgery can't be done remotely, but when you think about, you know, uh, general either initiating care or follow-up visits, like what, what percentage of that or what uh, amount do you, do you think will, will eventually be, once we reach an equilibrium, will be telehealth? I don't know. Um... It's going to be more than zero, less than a hundred. Um, and you know, if we're, um, I would, I'd like to say, don't quote me, but by definition, uh, being a podcaster, quoting me, um, if we're, because um, I don't, I don't, I don't have the, the the numbers at my fingertips, but you know, we may be at twenty percent now. Um, and if we're at twenty percent now. Um, it's probably not going to go down that much, uh, but it will go up. 
I don't, I don't, I, 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 you know, honestly, I can't, I don't think I can answer, really answer the question. There'll be more. Along with the, the telehealth, right, you're, you're talking about your strategic roadmap. HSS has do also done a lot of work to increase its geographic footprint. Uh, there are a number of satellite locations in the tri-state area. Uh, there's now a location open in Florida. Um, as you try and, I think the, the, the term you've used is musculoskeletal ecosystem. As you try and grow that, you know, uh, what do you what do you see as being sort of the the geographic footprint uh, as as you know we get into the coming years coming out of COVID? Our geographic footprint at HSS, combining brick and mortar and what we were just talking about virtual, will uh, not have a geographic boundary, um, we will be able to help people um, regardless of where they live. Our physical footprint, um, the buildings that have an HSS sign on it, will continue to grow and develop throughout the tri-state area, you know, 75 miles around where um, you primarily, where we primarily work, um, and we will um, continue to build our physical footprint in Florida beyond what it is now, for sure, without question. Um, the other um, forty-six states, um, I can't really say what our physical footprint will be, but our virtual footprint will um, find its way to most of them. I want to talk about uh, just some other ongoing uh, topics related to healthcare and healthcare administration. I know there's a, a growing discussion regarding diversity, equity, inclusion in healthcare. Um, a common goal of DEI initiatives is that, you know, clinicians, staff, and, and patient demographics at healthcare institutions should you know, reflect the communities uh, in which these institutions reside. Um, when you think about just say like the HSS main hospital, uh, it's sort of part of the, it's, it's, it's a part of a number of different communities, right? It's part of the Upper East Side, it's part of Manhattan, it's part of New York State, it's part of the United States. So when you think about a diverse HSS, you know, which, how do you uh, think about like which communities HSS is going to reflect? So um, we actually had a um, live stream yesterday for DE and I, and we have a value that we added to our values uh, list of values that are you know, foundational for our culture, as we talked about before. And the, the diversity value um, says we are committed to an environment of respect, equitable treatment, and opportunity for our patients, employees, and communities. And then we have three sub-goals in that uh, the sub well, you know, one of them is leadership needs to look like the rest of the organization. Um, and um, the second goal has to do with um, 
disparities in access to uh, care. And the third goal has to do with you know, people feeling um, you know, safe um, and feel respected being here. So um, we have a very diverse workforce, but leadership uh, does not is not diverse to look like the workforce, and uh, that's that's our goal. Um, but you know, we're the community that we serve is not um, we're we're not trying to look like the Upper East Side. Um, because only only uh, only five percent of our patients come from the Upper East Side. Only fifteen percent of our patients come from Manhattan. Only twenty-five percent of our patients come from New York City, and only um, you know eighty percent of our patients come from the tri-state area. So you know we 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 want to look like um, you know like. We, the, the more diverse uh, we are, the richer the environment and the stronger the culture is. Another uh, ongoing trend uh, that I've heard you talk about before is, uh, you know, mergers and acquisitions in the healthcare space. And uh, can you first off just speak to how that's changed the healthcare landscape in recent years? Well, you know, um, as there, I mean, there's a number. There, there's there's a number of ways to uh, look at that. Um, you know, as things become more complicated and more expensive to do what you need to do, you need to have scale. And um, if you don't have scale, it's hard to do what you need to do. And you may not be able to make the investments you need to make or you know, accomplish what you need to accomplish for whoever you serve. And you are at risk of um, not being able to do that. And, and you may not survive or you may not thrive. So you need you need scale. So how do you do that? Throw, so consolidation, you know, occurs. Um, two organizations that were part they come together. Um, or there's there's other ways to consolidate. Here's the facts. Bigger is not necessarily better. Um, take two examples of what's going on right now. J&J &J is splitting into two companies. GE is splitting into three companies. So there, there is a point in time when scale becomes challenging. And um, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying the merger and acquisition frenzy that's been going on in healthcare for a very long time is bad. I'm just saying it's not necessarily good. It doesn't always create the value for the end, the end consumer. Who's uh, receiving care or paying the bill? Sometimes it does. I mean, if Hospital X was going to close, if Hospital Y didn't buy it, then that may be good. 
but um, or if hospital X was doing an okay job with quality and hospital Y buys it and makes hospital X better, that's good. But you know, on, on the other hand, um, if healthcare becomes a commodity where cost and convenience becomes the dominant buying factor over quality and value, then it may not be so good. Um, so, you know, um, you just have to, um, it's not one size fits all. You can't paint it with a broad brush, but you have to look at it um, you know, very objectively to determine whether or not whatever is going on is good or bad. And um, so the commoditization of healthcare, broadly defined, is not necessarily good. In some cases, it may be. Um, um, it just it just uh, depends. In our case, it doesn't um, merges. It doesn't fit with what we have worked hard to uh, create over the course of time, and we have a different you know form of scale. You know, we're big enough and we're good enough to be independent and not you to you not needed to be part of someone else. And our brand is such that where it doesn't lend itself to acquiring um, other organizations because um, the only way to maintain the integrity of the HSS brand is really to, especially when you're, you're, you're doing it um, um, through people and kind of specialization we provide is you know, by growing um, it organically. So I don't really think we have M&A at our disposal as a tool, um, unless we unless we wanted to change the integrity of the brand, then we could, you know, then maybe we could down-regulate it. So we just tend to grow differently than other organizations have. Yeah, speaking to the, the commoditization and the, the economics of healthcare, I actually just want to read a, a passage from a, a book I'm uh, finishing up now. It's called Hostility to Hospitality. It's by uh, Michael and Tracy Balbani at Harvard Medical School. And they, they're kind of talking about, um, they're talking about spiritual care uh, as part of this book, but also the sense that, you know, a sense of compassion is being lost in healthcare. And I think it goes to write like what you were saying with the, the commoditization of, of healthcare. So Here's just something um, they wrote that I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on. They're speaking about just our healthcare system. They say, a well-organized system depends on depersonalizing its caregivers um, so that they complete their actions in an efficient manner. Um, later, it goes on to say, caregivers who fail to comply to an efficient medical system, for example, a doctor who regularly wants to take time to hold a patient's hand or hold an extended family meeting are marginalized and action which is justified on economic grounds. So kind of a, a harsh view of our, our medical system in a way, but I think it points to this greater um, question of how do you as a leader uh, at a healthcare institution balance, you know, the economic viability of the institution, but also giving your providers uh, the space and the ability to, to really take their time and, and uh, with patients yeah, I'm not sure what the point was of whoever wrote that, uh, but um, 
Um, you, I'm sort of amazed by by that. Um, healthcare is helping people stay healthy, and helping people who aren't healthy get better. It's you know, people caring for people. Now, in as with everything, everything has to get paid for. So it's a super complicated system. And there's many things that are great about it, and there's many things that could be improved by it. But we have a certain standard of care that needs to be provide, be provided, the right care at the right time, in the right place, with the right outcome. And the right outcome not only includes fixing whatever needed to be fixed, you know, remedying the underlying problem, but doing it in a way where the person receiving the care had a great experience. If you're, um, there, you have to continually figure out how to do that more um, efficiently, because if you can't figure out a way to do it within the framework of the resources you have available, then you're going to jeopardize the viability of the organization. And every organization has a different set of challenges with that, depending upon the kind of organization you are and depending upon where you are, depending on the services you provide. So um, it's not an apples to apples comparison, uh, but we have a, you know, a threshold of expectations that we expect to achieve and we expect to do that in a way that allows us to generate a level of profitability where we can afford to continue to invest in the core of what we do to make the organization better. Um, and you know, all these questions that you ask have asked, all the dots get connected. Um, you're going back to what we talked about with culture and how we grow our footprint and why we don't, why some do M&A and some, uh, some don't. Um, and why you know, reimbursement systems are changing and how virtual care comes into play. We're in this you know, constant state of experimenting, of finding out how to improve the healthcare system so that we can afford the level of care that people need so they can stay healthy. And if they're not, for whatever reason, that we can get them you know, back on track. HSS has consistently ranked uh, U.S. number one orthopedics on the U.S. News and World Report list. First off, um, if I'm a patient looking for care, how much how much weight should I put on these sort of rankings when when looking for a provider? And then from that, I, I want to hear uh, your your thoughts on how do you sort of balance this idea of competition versus collaboration with other healthcare institutions? Um, yeah, it's very hard for consumers. Um, um, you know, our, our objective view 
is that the U.S. news methodology is robust and factors in a number of things that make it um, of um, make it a good utility for people to look at. Um, but there are um, you know all kinds of other things that are required. Um, to you know, understand to really know, and it's really it's really hard for the consumer. Um, you know, there's the institute, you know, there's the the enterprise view and the individual provider view. Um, but I think to answer your question specifically, um, I think U.S. News, U.S. News has a robust methodology where it's a good uh, first uh, step um, for consumers to use. But there's a lot more to it than that, and uh, which is why you see things around value coming out from the government, and why you see other for-profit organizations developing different you know, ranking systems and grading systems, and why we recently came out with a um, hospital reliability scorecard and six factors of re reliability that a consumer should look at uh, be, you know, when they're thinking about, you know, how, how they, you know, where they go to receive care. What was the second part of your question? Yeah. So in, in sort of in light of those rankings, right, uh, essentially you have a list of different institutions and that sort of creates a sense of competition. How do you balance that sense of competition with collaboration with, with other hospitals? Eh, I don't really look at it that way. I didn't mean, I, I think we're, um, the way I, th the way, if if you if you ask me a different question, said who who's your competitor? Um, I would say ourselves, and we're competing with whatever our prior level of performance was, whatever however whatever you want to you know our quality, our outcomes, our you know, whatever our patient satisfaction results, you know, whatever that's who we're that's what we're competing against, and. Um, sometimes you get better by um, things that you do yourself, and sometimes you do better by doing things with other people. I want to wrap up our discussion by just asking about uh, payment structure in the U.S. healthcare system. I know 20% of GDP goes to healthcare in the U.S., meaning there's a lot of inertia in our payment structure, a lot of, you know, just, just so many dollars going into healthcare. Are, are, are there any changes you'd like to see uh, in payment structure and, and how uh, healthcare is paid for? Um, I think that everyone needs to take responsibility for their health. So some people have the ability to do that and some people don't. So how do we how do we create an environment where we can invest in being healthy? If we could do that, then we could the cost of that is less than the cost of not being healthy. So that's, I mean, look, no, no one has really figured out how to do that. That's a, that's a, that's a multi-factorial problem, but that's number number one. 
Um, and then in terms of um, the payment structure on the other side, it's sort of it's sort of tied to that. You know, right now, um, I mean, there's a you know, the payment structure has evolved you know, dramatically as long as I've been you know in the field, and this move from you know fee for service to value based care is like nothing new, and the experimentation on it continues in some geography, some organizations in some geographies have done a great job, and other geographies and organizations continue to challenge that. But the more you can move upstream from the problem in creating the financial incentives to keep people healthy or to give the organizations the financial wherewithal to um, um, deliver high value care, the better off you are. Um, you know, not not sure that we have enough time to go into details on that in terms of the role of um, provider-based organizations or the role of employer-based organizations or the role of insurance-based organizations to do that. Um, there's, there's um, you know, there's a lot of um, different things going on now that will um, I think help us move forward, including what you talked about earlier with virtual care. It's time for a lightning round, a series of fast paced questions that tell us more about you. Um, so I know you're from, from Pittsburgh and one of the cool spots I visited in Pittsburgh that I hear is pretty famous is Primanti brothers. So I was wondering love if you it. had a favorite sandwich at Primanti brothers. Cheesesteak. Love it. What is your favorite place to hang out in New York City? Central Park. Who was your role model as a kid? Grandfather. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, live life now. And what is the best part of working at hospital for special surgery? Oh my God, people. It's such an exciting place that it just makes you excited to come in to work every day because everyone, for the most part, is moving in the same direction. And um, it's you know, really exciting to work in a place that is um, always setting the bar higher and trying to do better. Lou Shapiro, thanks so much for joining the show. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.